the Cardboard Philosophy, the board game podcast where we talk about nothing serious, seriously. Each episode, we randomly pick from a list of niche, deep board game topics and have at it. So we invite you to join us at the table, listen in on our conversations, and let us know what you think. Welcome, one and all, to episode 26 of Cardboard Philosophy. And joining us, very special guest this week, is Nick Murray from Bitewing Games. You might know them from the Criminal Capers trilogy, uh, recently uh, Cascadero and Cascadito, Zuvatis, which is a very, very good negotiation game from The Good Doctor. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to be on the podcast. I've enjoyed listening to you guys. Um, I feel like there's, there's a lot of pressure on me, though, because I've been given very explicit instructions that I need to keep to a DPM of a rate of at least one. A DPM rate of at least one, meaning dings <laughs> per minute. Um, but oh, no. to, help, to help counteract that, um, Evan actually uh, offered me the great honor of rolling the dice this time so we can jump right into it. Um, I don't have a D31, so what I had to do was was pull out seven dice from <laughs> the one and only gang of dice, okay? Dang. Um, there we go. And <laughs> Oh my goodness, this man is prepared. <laughs> so I've been told that, you know, the, the prestige and the glory of this podcast comes in the form of, of just rolling the dice live mid recording and then just oh, jumping yeah. right into it and every, everybody's it. prepared across 31 topics now the crazy thing is not can anyone share what's special about these gang of dice d6s uh that steve and i have an ongoing feud as to whether or not the little mustached man is an important thing to include on the dice or not <laughs> that's that's a good that's a good guess that is not it any other guesses why why these d6s are special they're part of one of Kanitia's worst push your luck games. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's that's very close. Um, but you, you just got to swap out worst for best. Um, yeah, Gang of Dice, top three Kinesia Dice game. And uh, here we are. We're going to roll it and we're going to jump right into the topic. So... Oh Nick is bringing more energy to this podcast than the three of us combined ever have. <laughs> it's really high. I didn't warn you guys that uh, with seven dice, the range could be all the way up to 35. And there's only 31 topics. So if we go beyond the range of 31, then we have to do two topics at once, a one-hour episode. Um, but let's see what we got here. All right. This is the first time we've had a guest who is like holding us hostage on our own podcast. <laughs> he is dictating the terms. <laughs> Just roll with it. So, ha! Ah! Right. Um, math is hard when you're on the spot, you guys. Uh, the, the number is 21. Number's 21. 21. So, all right. 21. This is a Steve topic, right? Is it? Oh, yeah. this is a good a one. Steve topic. Okay. So, 21. First impressions. How can our first impressions of a game affect our overall experience? How much do things like the name, the box art, the pitch matter for our enjoyment? What a great topic for a board game publisher and a board game designer and just two schmucks to talk about. I agree. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, that that pretty much sums it up. I think we all know what first impressions are. Um, obviously, like the box art for me is usually something that grabs me right away, even if I'm browsing online, you know, wherever. Like that just, I immediately am interested in a game if there's like a cool box um, and, you know, components, things like that. Yeah. So just how, how much does that really affect it? Like, you know, we could argue whether or not it should matter, but but yeah. This is an interesting topic for me because I, I often write first impressions posts uh, um, yeah. on our Bytewing Games blog. And sometimes it's sometimes it's after one play, but often it's after two or three. So I, I try to get a little bit deeper into the game. Um, but from a publisher standpoint, first impressions are everything. And I think mm-hmm. um, we can see in the market that publishers are leaning more and more heavily into making a good first impression, sometimes at the detriment of of giving the game legs and mm-hmm. uh you know more depth to return to um because in in our modern current climate uh in the industry it seems like hobbyists are constantly jumping from one game to the next and so a lot of people are acquiring games faster than they can play them and so if they can get one or two plays in uh that may be all they get in a game and then they're gonna post a review about it uh even if it's was an off impression or even if there were factors outside of the game infecting it. Um, so it's from a publisher standpoint, it's a critical thing to nail. Um, but, but it's a tricky balance. I also think there's almost two levels of the first impression. There's like the first impression before you play the game, mm. like which sets kind of your expectations for what the game is. And if it makes you even want mm. to play it and then your first impression after that first game. So which one are we talking about? Or are we talking about both? I'd say both. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I definitely intended the the before you play the game as as part of what mm-hmm. I was getting at with like the box art and stuff like that. Um, but I think we could absolutely talk about, you know, like even like the first couple rounds of playing, you know, maybe not mm-hmm. even the first full game, but just like, although I think, you know, you could definitely talk about that too. Um, but yeah, just, just, just that, those first couple moves even, you know, just kind of like how it hits you right out of the gate. Yeah, I think those first couple of moves are really important. I can think about many games where even from like the first move, after I was taught the game, I was about to make my first turn, I just immediately felt like, ooh, this is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Like I didn't I didn't think yeah. that was gonna happen. But the moment I really started to think about my turn, I fell in love with the game, like from you know, the first second. And some other games, uh, it doesn't hit that way. Yeah, like as soon as you start putting all those pieces together, kind of. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of a, a core memory. It's not really a core memory, but um, several years ago when the movie Coco came out and uh, my wife and I went to see it together and uh, like the fools that we are, we showed up on time for the movie. And what that means is that the theater and the, the, the producer <laughs> just had us, they, they had us, they got us because what happens when you yeah. go to a movie, movie theater these days is you see 20 minutes of advertisements and previews <laughs> and then another 10 minutes of whatever filler and then the movie starts. But in this case, they decided to add in another layer yeah. of pain and <laughs> it was the, the frozen like Olaf's adventure short mm. film before Coco and I was not there to see some garbage throwaway frozen spinoff. And like, I have never been so enraged before a movie even started. Like I was just in the, the most sour mood of all time and the movie hadn't even started yet. Um, so kudos to Coco for, for like totally turning it around for me 
and uh, becoming a very enjoyable movie for me. Because I feel like sometimes when you come in with a sour mood, whether it's to a movie or to a board game, with with that mm-hmm. attitude of like, I'm not going to like this, or I don't like the artwork or the mechanisms, or there's too many components on the table. Um, this is too long. I didn't sign up for this, whatever it is, or I don't like mm-hmm. the theme then that can kind of set the tone. And sometimes that's infectious, right? If, if somebody shows mm-hmm. that emotion, then it kind of spreads across the table. And then everybody yeah. has kind of a fo- poor first impression of the game. Mm-hmm. And so it's cool when a game can turn that around on its own merits. But um, yeah, I think first impressions with the artwork and the theme, just making it an invi- as inviting as possible is, is very important. I think the opposite of that can also happen where if the person that's bringing the game is really, really excited about it. And, you know, this is a new game for them. They've never played it before and they start playing it and maybe the teach didn't go super well or there is someone that's in a bit of a bad mood. The table, like not getting fully into it can really turn them off and kind of very quickly turn their positive attitude into like, oh man, why did I think this was a good idea? Now we're all stuck here playing this for two hours and it can become Mm. a bit of a drag for the teacher too. Yeah, I was going to say there's definitely the like the teach how the person who brought the game kind of pitches it, you know, how it gets yeah. described that can all be a very uncontrollable part from a publisher perspective, like part of the first impression, right? Like mm-hmm. and I've definitely done that. I've I've like pulled out a game and just like the way I describe it to the table, I just like immediately I'm like, "Ah, I shouldn't have said that. That's no, that's not <laughs> like <Yeah>. scratch that." <laughs> I think the groupthink idea is very potent with me. It's been very rare for me to play a game and dislike it and have other people at the table like it a lot. Maybe maybe like the tastes vary or the opinions vary a bit about the game, but usually it feels like we're all on the same page. Like, that was great, right? Yeah, that was great. Or this mm-hmm. is boring, right? Yep, this is boring. Just because it's such an interactive medium, it's very hard for one person to be having the time of their lives while the other people yeah. you know, hate it. That's That's really weird. Like, I don't... I mean, if you're playing like a roll and write, maybe, and you have no idea what's happening, sure. But for most games, I think it's it's infectious, that energy. Um, it just starts spreading, whether it be love or hatred towards the game. So what are your guys' thoughts on, like, before the game is even played? Like, uh, some things that Evan mentioned, like the name, the box art, the uh, the pitch. Um, you know, how, how have you observed or, or what have you noticed about, you know, strong first impressions from other people or from yourselves? Uh, in that regard so this is very anecdotal to me but something that i have found is i will get recommended a game usually by people actually pretty much anybody on this podcast uh if it's not on nick's blog then it's uh (laughs) robert or steve saying you got to try this game and i will often go into a recommendation like that thinking that it's going to be a hoot right out of the gate where often you don't really get into the groove of something until two three rounds in And so I'll use Barrel Dice as an example. That was something that I recently picked up on Robert's recommendation. Or Mlem, that's another great example. Dang. Um, I went into that expecting it to be a box full of fun right out of the first round. And it's like, oh, this isn't everyone laughing and, you know, patting each other on the back. But two, three rounds later, everyone is doing that. And so I think that's something that's important to also understand is it's not going to be a even if you have great first impressions and like the box is great, the name is great, it might take a round or two before it actually starts to hit. Do you want me to make that game for you, Evan, where instead of victory points, you get pats on the back? And that's how you track your scores. <laughs> Would that be the, the ideal game? 
everybody gets an extended arm. You can pat somebody across the table. <laughs> yeah, it's tough because that can sometimes go too far too, right? Like, um, I can, you know, somebody can recommend a game and, and to me that like sets a certain expectation. And, and yeah. sometimes it's like maybe I don't play it at the same player count or, you know, like the setup or something about it um, is, is different that, that I'm like, oh, wow, like what? What what did they see in this? Like I don't I don't get it, um, and I can't help but wonder like if I if I had just randomly come across this, would I have felt the same if I didn't have that higher expectation? Would I have even played it though? Nah, you know, I th- I think the biggest pre-playing thing for me is the designer name. Uh, that's like the mm. first. That's like that's how I categorized games in my head. It's not like oh it's a Euro or it's an Ameritrash. It's like it's a Kinesia, it's a Wallace, right? That that's how I kind of or like file them in my head. And it can it can go for the the better um, in the sense that if it's a Kinesia, I know that if I play it once and I'm a little underwhelmed, I should try it a second time just in case. Because <laughs> sometimes that magic just slowly seeps in. Uh, like we recently had with Strozzi, we played it again after a while. And it kind of crept in. Um, but it can also be a bad thing where, you know, people are like, oh, the next you know, tile placement game from Kinesia Havalandi. And I'm like, oh, let's go. <laughs> I, I love these. And then it's like, fine. You know, if it, if it didn't say Kinesia on the box, I might really like it. But because it does, I'm coming at it with such like high expectations and like such um, crit- like a, a critical eye, I think, because I'm expecting greatness. So I think the designer name can really affect expectations and thus first impressions. Coupled with the box art, I agree with you 100% because I will look at the designer name, especially the further into the weeds of the hobby I get. And if it's something like, a uh, Michael Kiesling or Wolfgang Gang, or Wolfgang Kramer or Knizia, and it has a boring German dude on the cover. I'm hidden probably gem. gonna love this game. It's it's a guaranteed hidden gem. <laughs> but if it's like this unheard of designer with a boring European dude, and he's like feeding a horse, I'm maybe not gonna be as excited about it. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I think I think you have to be a few years into the hobby for the most part uh, to to start looking at board games from the designer or even the publisher perspective, where mm-hmm. you get excited about like Capstone's next title or you get excited about mm-hmm. a designer's next title. Right before that, you don't really know any better. You're yeah. just you're just kind of following. I think more shallow stuff, but still meaningful, mm-hmm. like like the box art and the theme and the the feeling that the game evokes um because that's that's at least my trajectory into this hobby i when i really got into it i started watching all these you know dice tower top 100 videos and and like really fast forwarding through them just to see what what games they were listing and see what caught my eye and it was usually the the theme like Mm -hmm. like king of tokyo stands out as like oh king of the hill with monsters that sounds more interesting than than this game with with camels and in the desert or uh <laughs> um is that a ding <laughs> <laughs> it's close enough Cam- camels through the desert <laughs> <laughs> um but then the other games like camel up oh there you go camels in the desert i mean that one is like <laughs> oh you're stacking camels and you're betting on them and like oh that sounds thrilling you know um, and it really took me a few years to, to start appreciating designers and seeing the, the pattern of, of types of games that they would work on and their, their design ethos and stuff. So yeah, I do think, I do think designers have a huge impact on hobbyist gamers, but, um, it's, it's funny, like even hobbyist gamers can be instantly turned off by a title or a, an art style or a theme 
Uh, you, you hear it from even like the most established critics. Like there are people who won't play our game Gussie Gorillas because they, they don't like the name. They think it's icky. And uh, <laughs> part of that's just because like modern slang can can turn a lot of things into uh, innuendo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. uh, the classic terminology for it is just like gussied up, you know, just well groomed. But that's that's not what everybody thinks of because that's not their personal experience. And that's not what the the title or the the box cover whatever leads them to think of and so it's interesting how you, you really can't usually capture everyone with even the most gorgeous box art like wingspan is has a broad appeal right but there are some people that are just like i hate birds <laughs> so they're just not gonna play it they're, they're just turned off instantly and then a dragon game comes out and they're they're all in right so mm-hmm. interesting or like anthropomorphic animals mm-hmm. some people will not go near those yeah. I honestly think anthropomorphic animals are starting to turn where <laughs> that was such a selling factor for so long. And I think it's slowly starting to maybe not go the other way entirely, but it's, it's drifting in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I think people just get bored of stuff, you know, or that, yeah. you know, trends come and go. It's just, you see something long enough, you kind of want to shake it up, something different. Um, I don't know. I think there's definitely these trends in like board gaming. Like you'll see waves of something that kind of it's, it's unique and different. Like I feel like birds at first was like, Whoa, birds, a board game. That's not like, you know, castles and you know, like livestock or whatever is just like bird watching. That's pretty unique and new. Um, and then after the millionth, you know, nature themed watercolor, you know, style thing, it's kind of like, okay, we get it. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see publishers chase these trends. Like you see uh, Root and Everdell kick off the anthropomorphic animal thing, right? And then everybody's trying to get in on that. And now it feels a little bit played out to a lot of people. Uh, same with, you know, Cascadia and, and uh, Wingspan, yeah. the na- nature style theme. And now you've got like Aqua coming out and it feels very much like those games and both in the art style and, and in the gameplay. And some people love it. They're still, they're still having a great time with it. And that's awesome. And the game does look gorgeous, but, but it's like, okay, we've got a lot of these games now. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, there can be some exhaustion there. Um, but the other thing that's interesting to me that we touched on a little bit, but I'd like to hear your thoughts some more is just the first impressions, like your first or second even play of a game and how important is that? And, um, what, what are your thoughts on, how publishers are handling that versus the the long term, you know, the legs, the the depth of a game, and and what are your observations there? What are your observations? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> way to turn oh, it around. Man. Yeah, <laughs> Uno reverse. <laughs> I I don't like to I don't like to I try not to call out specific games or publishers, but I do feel like a lot of the mass market publishers that are very well established and very popular and well known and get into target and, you know, your big box stores, uh, they do seem to be trending more and more towards just a game that makes a great first impression and the rest of it, you know, whatever. Like uh, I think, games tend to make a good first impression if they're not mean, right? Like you come in and you play Zuvadis and <laughs> um, you might just get raked over the coals by somebody who's a good negotiator or somebody who's played before and understands the, the intricacies of the strategies at play. 
and you might come away with a sour taste in your mouth and not want to play it again. And maybe, and some people will come away and be like, that's a bad game. (laughs) But um, other people might come away and, and realize like, you know what, I was inexperienced and, and it was hard for me to compete. And they may still not like it, even in that scenario. Like, I just don't want to play it again. You know, it wasn't fun for me, right? Whereas a less yeah. interactive game, it, as long as it's a new puzzle, right? And a pleasant mm-hmm. pleasant production, then it, it's likely to make a decent first impression. And more consistently, you're not going to have those lows. But in my opinion, you, you sometimes sacrifice the highs that you can get from those games, whether it's the first play or the 10th play. There's just, it's, it's very... Um, you know, even keel, it's instead of a lot of highs and lows and, and thrills to it. But there are other publishers who who maintain the philosophy of like, we're going to try to onboard you as good as possible, like leader games with Roots and Oath. We're going to try to onboard you with our, our you know, supplemental rulebook as much as possible and, and get you into the game. But there are going to be, there's very few guardrails. There's a lot of highs and lows. And this is our style of game, take it or leave it. So it's interesting to me to observe those two and it's it's nice that the industry is big enough to accommodate the both yeah. spec sides of the spectrum, but um, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, if you don't have an established audience, it's hard to have a game that can make a bad first impression just because of the interaction, right? And the, and the meanness there. The the thing that kind of stands out to me the most of what you're saying, Nick, is you obviously want to be a good sport when you're playing. So there is that to it, but you almost need the first impression to be fun when you're losing, especially if it's going to be a more interactive or brutal game. Like I'm thinking of most of splatters catalog. You can lose the game on your first move. Uh, food chain magnet is famous for that, where if you put your restaurant in the wrong place, you could just totally railroad yourself for the rest of the game. But it's kind of fun to Try to dig yourself out of that hole, especially if everybody else has put themselves into a bad position. So I'm just kind of thinking like the impression of losing the game is almost as important as the impression of just playing the game. That makes me think of, uh, and I match this opinion pretty well. So very wrong about games. They often say like, it's good when you lose your first play of a cooperative game, you know, it's it's less interesting if you win it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, there's that fine balance of like, I want to feel like I can get better at this game and whether I win or lose, as long as I feel like I can improve and there's more depth here, that's what what excites me personally. I don't really care whether I win or not. It's more, you know, what, what is here for me to play with next time? And what, what was I able to enjoy this time, regardless Mm -hmm. of my, my status on the score track. Something that might be worth considering is that maybe like what a game is is changing. Like if people are only playing games once or twice, then can we blame publishers for prioritizing first or second plays? Like that's what it means to play a game now. It means to play it once and move on. So that yeah, that should be the focus, right? Um why put all the energy and effort into making your tenth play great if like one percent of people, yeah. maybe not even that, get there? So it's almost like the publisher is just chasing what the consumer is doing. So, I mean, if, if we think that you should play a game 10 times, maybe it's on the consumers to start wanting that and then the publishers will start delivering that. I'm also thinking, like, we're talking about, like, uh, Nick, you mentioned, like, the, the games that make it into, like, the big box stores, like your Targets and Walmarts. Um, I mean, to me, those are often, like, 
those places lean heavier into like the family games or even like the party games where like wi- they're like winning and losing is kind of secondary like you almost don't even keep score or who cares or it's like how many shelves of cards against humanity are, do you see a target and it's like it's not really about who wins or loses who nobody cares who got the most cards at the end of that you know it's like it's just a, a goofy thing to do with people so or like there's a bunch of trivia games like all kinds of different trivia games and like um you know sure like i don't know i, I feel like um those are just more like a an experience to hang out with your family or something and so there's something about those that um i think they do stand up to like repeated plays but um yeah i'm, I'm not sure exactly what point i'm trying to make regarding first impressions um but just like the idea of like oh if you have a bad time or like a take that kind of game like yeah that's probably not gonna go super great with like families or there almost is no bad time because everybody's just laughing at silly stuff i think that also speaks to knowing your audience because i was thinking earlier when we were talking about like the boring european guy in the front of the box and as hobbyists we see it's uh kramer and keesling game and go oh this is going to be a fun time but if I just throw that in front of my friends who aren't hobbyist gamers, they're going to go, why are we playing this boring sounding game? Like yeah. El Grande, is this all going to be in Spanish? And why is everything beige? You know that they're going to have a good time, but that first impression that you're presenting, and that can really come down to the pitch of yeah. what you're doing, but the presentation might actually kind of contradict what you're selling which can create a bit of a weird first impression for your table, even though you know it's going to be a good time. That's something I think about as a publisher is, is like not just what kind of impression are we making to the customer with a product, with a game, but how easy is it going to be for them to get this game to the table when they, when they have it in a stack of games or they, they pull a few games out of their bag in front of a group and they kind of briefly describe them and say, okay, which one do you all want to play? Right. And so then that makes it much harder to get games like Hansa Teutonica to the table. Fantastic game. But if they haven't played it yet, if they don't understand uh, how highly regarded it is, then Mm. it's just an uphill battle. And uh, that's, that's why we do with our publications, try to find, uh, unique and stand out and vibrant themes and art styles that that still are are functional. They cater to the gamer who just cares about the mechanics and the experience and the smooth smooth feel of it, but also just invite others to to want to try it. Yeah, I definitely have felt that pain of like. I want to teach this game. I, I swear, guys, it's cool, but like, yeah. ignore this cover, like, or just you know, like the theme is gonna sound goofy, but just trust me. Um, and it's <laughs> it's just it goes goes so much smoother when it's just like, ooh, look at these cool pieces, and yeah. I uh, I saw an ad for your upcoming project for Bebop today, and I was I was already excited for the project, but I will tell you, <laughs> if I didn't already know the game and didn't know like the talent behind it, I would have been very excited just with that cover. What a, what a sneaky, sneaky little slide in that was just out of nowhere. <laughs> That's good. That's kudos to Kyle. He made those ads, but also Weberson Santiago for the artwork. He's a, he's a beast. Yeah. I've heard, um, I've, I've been, showing that uh, sharing that campaign around and that's generally the response that i've been seeing too what campaign are you talking about nick could you possibly enlighten us a bit more (laughs) (laughs) well so part of the reason i hear i'm here besides just tormenting 
you guys with with my my tricks uh is because robert and i have teamed up and and kyle you know by wing games with robert have teamed up to publish some of your first publications your first designs that are coming to market and uh we announced it very recently it's called the jazz collection collectively three games of cool cats and cool jazz one of those is cat blues the big gig a Kinesia card game, um, which incidentally is is one of Robert's favorite games, and and uh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan as well. So it's fun to be bringing that back. But that one was actually like the last minute add on to what our original plan was of Bebop and Shuffle and Swing. So yeah, if you guys want to, we can we can get into that a little bit, and that's that's exciting to have a podcast member here putting out some of his first designs, and uh, I'm excited to talk about them too. We've been working hard on them for quite a few months now. I just realized that you are the same Robert that designed those. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> what would be really interesting is to talk about how you. Um, are presenting those games from a first impression standpoint. Because I just said designer yeah. name is everything for me. So if I was not me and I saw those games, I'd be like, it looks cool, but I don't know this guy. Yeah. So I'm like, why would I buy this, right? Like to me, yeah. a new designer is really scary. Of course, there's there's publisher pedigree. I, like mm-hmm. at this point, I know Bitewing and I like Bitewing, so that might convince me. But I think you can't rely on that anymore, right? So what do you rely on for a first impression at that point? Yeah, that's the challenge, right? Like Bitewing Games, we uh, the only reason we're so big is because we've stolen the the credentials and the acclaim <laughs> and the fame and the fans of Reiner Knizia and Ryan Courtney and Quanchai Moria and Ian O'Toole. Like, it's not just me being like, all right, whose whose fans can I steal next? Uh, it yeah. is it is convenient, I'll be honest. Um, but it's also um, I'm I'm a huge fan of these creators as well, and it's been really fun to work with them. But then when we bring somebody like Robert in who who nobody has played a published game of his because there isn't one that exists yet. Yeah. Um, and we're making hobbyist games for hobbyist gamers who, like we said earlier, all oftentimes rely on the designer, right. To get excited about a game. Um, and so it's, it's a challenge, right? Like we announced Cascadero and we're saying, Hey, it's the next Kinesi tile and everybody's pumped and it's number one on the board game geek hotness. And it's just a party. Right. And then we announce, uh, like three killer jazz games and they don't quite have the same, mm-hmm. um, you know, burning, I guess, hotness as, as the previous did. It's, it's an uphill battle, but, um, I think a lot of it comes down to we're relying more on the Bitewing Games brand, right? Which I wish we had released Cascadero, Cascadito, Spectral, you know, our our very soon to be released games uh, for people to play and see like, oh, it's not just Zuvatis or Trailblazers, their most recent Mm, stuff that's that's solid, but (laughs) it's, it's also like, you know, we're trying to be consistent with our solid games so more people can see like, okay, we can trust Bitewing Games to put out a good game. But um, so that's part of it. We lean a little bit on our own branding to get people excited. But um, I think a lot of it comes down to do the do the concepts and 
the presentations stand on their own two legs. And if they do, then people will, will come and support it. Right. Um, they'll, they'll take a chance and maybe it's less people who are willing to take that risk on a first time designer, which is fine. It happens. I mean, it's, it's part of the process. It's the, it's the passage, the rite of passage you must go through Robert, (laughs) um, people who need to gain their trust in you. But, um, Part of that is is just um, us doing a killer job on the artwork, hiring you know Weberson Santiago to do Bebop, who does very vibrant um, illustrations and and games, as well as Gary Chalk to to kind of invoke that nostalgic um, you know old school creature, almost almost fantasy, but just charming uh, mice and cats building instruments vibe um, for those who are familiar with Redwall and kind of, you know, hearkening back to that. So um, I I think for us, our challenge is like, we're going to try to get these games out to as many previewers as we can. We're going to try to get people playing it at Dice Tower West. If you're coming to that, you can come play at our demo zone tables, um, both of Robert's games and just keep people playing them and, and sharing with others like, Hey, these are actually really fun games. They're really great. And you should, you should support this because, um, you know, I think, I think Robert's a great designer and, and, uh, you know, these first two games are, are a great start for him and he has plenty more great ideas in store. So, um, I'd love to see, love to see your audience and fan base grow. Just wait for the padding on the back game. That's going to blow. Up. <laughs> Can't wait. Now, Robert, are you nervous about folks' first impressions once they start playing? Because that's kind of like, this is going to be their first game of yours, right? And like, maybe the art is cool. And they're like, all right, theme sounds cool. Art looks cool. But I've never heard of this guy. Let's, let's see what happens, right? Like, so that first game, first impression. I hadn't thought important. about it, um, but now I'm terrified. So thanks. <laughs> Add it to the list. <laughs> Another thing to be anxious about. Hey. It was getting a little short lately too. Darn. I think one thing that's in our favor is is like we've built up an audience of of Kinesia fans, especially. You know these these games that play in roughly an hour are very interactive, and they they have some good depth to them. Um, but they're they're not too complicated rules or component wise. And uh that's these games are very much in line with that. You know, Bebop is is like a tile laying game inspired by a lot of Kinesia designs. And um but but then it does its own unique thing with dice and and kind of two layers of tile placement. And then Shuffle and Swing is definitely us venturing into kind of a new genre or territory with with more of your Euro game. But if you listen to my blog, I often complain about Euro games because they all kind of feel the same <laughs> and they're increasingly less interactive and more complicated. And I, I just get personally like when you play, you know, 60 new to you games a year, which is, is probably, you know, I, I probably do 60 or 70 a year. I get tired of learning the rules of these games that I feel like they provide roughly the same experience. Um, and so what excited me about shuffle and swing is that it's, it's more streamlined. It's more interactive. It's um, and the theme is a lot of fun. And so it, it kind of harkens back to that old school Euro of, you know, there's there's modern things like rondelles and dice workers that you're using, but then uh, more interaction and more tight scoring and things like that. And so that that kind of excites me. And and I feel like the Euro game genre could use some more of that personally these days. So 
Yeah, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm probably most nervous about shuffle and swing because you're like, oh, euros, I like euros. There's some tracks in this. Mm-hmm. And then you start playing it and you're like, oh, I have to pay attention to what you're doing. You know, maybe somebody <laughs> like, like, I don't want it to give off the impression that it's just, you know, the next, you know, tea game or something. It's not that. Um, so that, that'd be my biggest worry is that a modern euro gamer comes in expecting a modern euro. They want to do their own little puzzle and, you know, just not worry about other people just build their sandbox and compare it with others so i think that's where we could have a bad impression um is if the wrong uh, expectation is set that this is somehow a modern euro which has all the you know expectations with it well i think the one thing in your favor is there is a mix of of both positive and negative player interaction in the game where where Mm -hmm. you using somebody else's die helps them by giving them a a uh another worker to use which Mm -hmm. is always a nice pleasant thing to get from somebody else and um and then you're working together on instruments too and i see some similar traits to that in the number one game on board game geek brass birmingham where you use somebody else's resource and it gets their tile flipped and they get points and then more income and then they feel good about that and so you know things like that i think will hopefully help it but we don't don't have to plug these games any longer (laughs) i'll just say that um our Kickstarter pre-launch page is up. If you go to bitewinggames.com, you can easily find the link to that page. Also, um, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, like how these games were made and stuff, you can find on the game page forums on BoardGameGeek, where uh, I did a publisher diary and Robert did a, a multi-part uh, designer diary on these games. And th- those are fun reads, and you can kind of get more insights into what these games are like, how they were made, and, and why they were made, and things like that. So that's that's my spiel. That's my my plug for the evening. <laughs> So for impromptu segment, uh, we are going to be doing best first impression or our favorite game that makes a good first impression and a game that does not make a good first impression, but by the end of the game, everyone's going to want to play it again. Robert, would you like to go first? Uh, I would love to, but I think Steve really wants to go first. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll give it to Steve. (laughs) Sure. Um, So... I, I really hate to do this. Uh, we've talked about Botswana so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> ding. Um, but I bring it up because this was a game, this was probably, this might have been like my first like import game that I like ordered from like a different country and paid like mm-hmm. twice the cost just to have it shipped or whatever, you know, like went through some ridiculous process just to get this game. And I had never played it it's not like and i didn't have somebody telling me i should play it i just saw the cover and i was like that art looks great that looks like a fun time it looks lighthearted and fun it's a canizia i love it i want it i just i needed to have it i didn't even read the rules i knew nothing about it i just saw that cover and wanted it and i bought it and it's and we talk about it a lot so no no question there um then for like my worst or a bad first impression or whatever, um, Arongo, that cover, Ding. I was like, hmm, Ding. okay, I mean, cool, I'm, I'm interested, but like, I really didn't get it. And then like, we took the uh, I, first time I played was with Robert, we took the pieces out and like, the tiles are kind of hard to see. And like, you know, like, they're, they're not like beige, but it's just sort of like, I don't know, something about the art, like it didn't really get me excited. And I was just kind of like, okay, I mean, I, I don't, but you don't, I don't, you don't get excited and, about potatoes. <laughs> I mean, there's something kind of funny and quirky about it now. Like I kind of have embraced it or whatever, but just like the, the initial first impression, like nothing was really grabbing me or like the little tiddly wink kind of thing. I don't know. I just like, it just, 
right out of the gate, I was just like, I don't know, man. But maybe by turn two or three, I feel like Robert and I had this moment where we looked at each other, we were like, this is good. <laughs> like, like I think I think we were putting we were like deciding what shells, like how to bid the shells, and we were like holding our hands out, and we were just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that one like just to me was like a real big turnaround, real quick that stands out. Arango somehow manages to make green feel beige. <laughs> yeah, it does. yeah, that's so true. Uh I will go next. Um, oh, I, I, do, I get double. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. fine. <laughs> go ahead. I mean, you, I'll just you, go last. You forewent you your uh, slot. Um, okay. my your, your choices, best... Robert, are going to be a big letdown by the time we get to you. So yeah. <laughs> just, just so you know. Um, mine are, my best first impression is a little trick taker called Arm. Everyone I have shown it to has been like, ooh, what's that? And then you play it and it's, such a cool little trick taker. I really love it. If you play with enough players, it's a team-based trick taker. If you don't play with that many players, then it's just every man for himself. And the production's super minimal, but every little touch that there is is just really inviting. The art's really cool, kind of trippy. The theme is really bizarre, but it's fun to teach because of that. Uh, big fan of ARM. And like then ARM like A-R-M? A-U-R-U-M. Our, uh, it's oh, the Canadian oh, spelling of yes. ours. Oh, okay. We yeah, like, this have an interesting exist. way of pronouncing <laughs> our vowels here. <laughs> Got uh, you. About that. And then my worst first impression is a Kiesling and Kramer joint called Palaces of Carrara. Oh, yeah. And the box is super weird looking. It's basically a road with a bunch of dudes on it and there's some like marble pillars and then you open it and everything's just super white uh, and there's these weird splashes of color and there's these little bricks and you go what are you going to ask me to do and then you play it and you're like holy crap this is so inventive and so cool I've never played it with anyone who hasn't wanted to play it again that's a great pick yeah I, I, I remember a very specific night where it was like late and I was itching to play Carrara because I really liked that game and I pulled it out and they looked at me like what is this yeah. just very skeptical they did not want to do it but I forced them and it was a good time <laughs> um, but yeah it's a great game uh, Nick we're, gonna let we're Robert such go rude hosts so. we should have let you go first <laughs> build the suspense well technically we're going in the order of, of uh, these thumbnails on my screen so that works for me so uh, all right, so uh, worst first impression. I, I'm a little bit off the track here. This is just personal, like a game that made the worst first impression for me, but ended up being one that I really, really like. I have two games for this uh, category. So the first <laughs> one is actually Through the Desert, which is... Uh, ding, ding. One, yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> one of the first Kinesia games that I ever played, I believe, probably one of the first five. And I tried it at two players, and I think that was Ooh. a mistake, which I think, honestly, I, I haven't tried it since at two players. I think I would appreciate it more now. It's good. But... Um, yeah, when I when we tried it in that setting, it it just felt like you can do whatever you want, you know. Like it, we were coming in first play ever, right? So we didn't get the ramifications of like what we were trying to do competitively and how to win and stuff. Um, some experience helps with that, obviously. So um, that was that kind of slowed my my trek through Kinesia games, but eventually I tried it again, I think at four players. And that's when I realized like, Oh dang, this game is actually really good. Uh, because the more of the, um, the competition and, and I guess the stress of like multiple people 
crowding in on your territory at once and you got to choose mm-hmm. one one thing to block mm-hmm. off or gun for instead of everything that you want um so that has become one of my all-time favorite games so that was a cool turnaround the other one actually was uh pipeline which uh. first time i played it um it, it wasn't a great first impression because um my, my buddy who brought it didn't know how to play it he broke out the rule book and tried to read through it and teach us in uh like right there as we were sitting trying to play it and so like the teach was a little messy and and i didn't fully understand the game and um and then there were there aspects of it that just kind of rubbed me wrong and i came away and i actually wrote this on board game geek i was like this game i just wish it was just the pipes you know that that's like the interesting part of this game that's what i wish (laughs) ironically this was like way before uh you know, we we got deep into the publishing weeds, but ironically, we ended up publishing that game in Trailblazers. But um, what's weird is like I heard other people praise Pipeline, and it like a year later, it just kind of like lingered with me, and I was like, maybe that game mm. is more interesting than I gave it credit for. So I tried it again, and after reading the rule book, you know, and understanding it better, and it uh, it went much better, both for myself and my wife, who didn't like it our first time. So. That was an interesting uh, arc. And then as, as far as game that was like straight from the, the get-go, made an amazing first impression and it stuck with me, I would choose Inish. Um, mm. My first ever play yeah. of that, you know, the artwork is gorgeous. Um, the components are, are, it's a very nice production. And the game is just very tense. You know, straight from the get-go, the decisions feel tough. They feel tense. And you're just, you're jostling for control or one of the victory conditions. And I I remember my first play of that just coming away like, this is one of my favorite games I've ever played. And and for a time, it was my number Mm -hmm. one game. And it's still, you know, my top 20. And so Inish has, you know, came out of the gates really strong. And it still remains strong for me. I, I really like that game. Those are some solid picks, Nick. I almost went with Pipeline, too, because that's a game where you tell people, okay, we're going to play a game about the oil industry, and we're going to run pipes, <laughs> yeah. and they always look at you like, no, this is a bridge too far, Evan. And it's like it's made for experienced players, I feel. So when you come in your first time, you are just yeah. so inefficient with everything you're doing, and like, it's not till the second or third game that you're like, wait a second, I just got an engine up and yeah. running, and like, it's so expensive to do, and you think like, on your first play, I shouldn't do that. That's too expensive. I'm just going to do like the low hanging fruit and it, it doesn't work out, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. You got to, it's a grower, I think. Okay. Who's next? Cause it can't be me. Who is it, Evan? <laughs> well, would you look at that? We're out of time. Thanks for listening. Uh, Robert, you're up. Um, so I have a, a personal worst first impression and then just like a teaching other people bad impression so blood rage when i played it for the first time i really disliked it um but i think that's because i played it pretty early on in my board game playing career i guess if we want to call that a career (laughs) i love rising sun it was like the game that really got me into the hobby and so i i heard oh this is like the other game from the same dude so i was really pumped to just play rising sun but vikings and it's not rising sun but vikings because why would you do that well <laughs> why make two games that are the same <laughs> but for some reason my expectation was that it would be the same um and so i just bounced off it super hard and then two years later i decided to buy it again because i knew how popular it was and i tried it and i just loved it and i still really really like it so that's blood rage as a personal bad first impression and then the game that i have to always convince people to play um is turn in taxes which is a great old German game. I think it won a spiel at some point too. And it's about like carrying mail in Germany in like the 16th, 17th, 18th. It doesn't really matter which century. 
Um, and it's just so beige and kind of on the surface boring. But at the end of the day, it's about root building. And it's got like a very nice, I think, ticket to ride kind of vibe where you're drawing cards to build roots on a board. But what I love about it relative to ticket to ride, which I don't like so much, is that instead of having a bunch of draw turns and then one big play turn, it's a lot more consistent. Every turn you mm. draw and you play. And there's a very nice push your luck where you can decide to finish your route and score or you can choose to keep it going. But if on your next turn you can't add to that route because you can't legally extend the link, then you kind of bust and you lose the route. So it's like every turn is like a constant push your luck. Um, and people like that. And it's easy to teach. It's easy to understand. Um, and it's always just like a good family level game. And then in terms of a game that had a very good first impression and just made me excited to play it, the most recent one I can think of is Scout. Um, a, a great little card game that's getting into Target now, so I'm sure you've heard of it. But the moment I had the cards in my hand and I was about to play my first turn, I was like, oh, this is good. I could just, because I, I could see like, oh, okay, if I play the seven, then the two eights will get too closer to each other. So that might make sense. But do I wait and do I scout now instead of, instead of playing? What do I, like, just immediately from the first turn, I felt so excited about the decisions I was going to make. Um, so if you haven't checked out Scout, I think it's the best card game to come out in a very long time. Um, so I would definitely check it out. Yeah. And that does it for episode 26. Again, another very big thank you to Mr. Nick Murray for joining us from Bitewing Games. Uh, Nick, where can people find you? Ooh, like I said, bitewinggames.com. We have a blog. Uh, I do a podcast, but it's very lonely. It's usually just me by myself, just talking about games. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But maybe I'll have you guys on there soon, and it'll be a lot more fun. So that'd be fun to check out. Um, And... Kyle does YouTube videos, usually how to plays. Um, and we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but probably most active on Twitter, honestly. But um, yeah, you know, the best place to find us is is within our creations, our board games. You can find me and my heart residing in, in the depths of Zuvatis and and among, <laughs> among the mice of Shuffle and Swing and so on. So um, there you have it. And uh, Jazz Collection launches on the 26th of March? Yeah, the plan is March 26th, and there's going to be three excellent jazz games together. Um, it's a good opportunity because there's going to be like $75 of savings if you get the bundle from all the expansion and deluxe content that we'll give for free to folks who get the bundle. So that's a good nice. reason to support us. Also, if you like if you like our games, you know, we're a small publisher, so any support we get is, is going to help us thrive and survive. Otherwise, I have to go back go back to just pulling teeth and doing fillings, <laughs> which which is, you know, sometimes it's fun if if you know, you need to satisfy that bloodlust, but um <laughs> oftentimes it's not quite as fun as publishing games, so I appreciate any support we get. As far as our neck of the woods, you can always shoot us a note if you have a question, comment, concern to cardboardphilosophy at gmail.com. We also have a guild on Board Game Geek. We've had that for a couple of months. I'm still not entirely sure how it works, but it's been cool to have and say that we have one. Uh, as always, um, make sure to play some games. See you next time.